Covenant of Grace is a Presbyterian church, and in this episode, I'll talk about why. Now, I should say we're not currently affiliated with a particular Presbyterian denomination. We have supporting churches in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, and the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, though we're not uh, officially members of either one. I was ordained in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church when I entered ministry back in 2007, but I've not been a minister in that denomination for several years now. Why are we Presbyterian? And if we're not members of a denomination, what does that even mean? Well, we need to talk first about church government. The church is a social body. It's called out of the world. It's constituted by the authority of Jesus Christ. And there's no social body. There's no society that can exist in purity and peace without some form of order. And you can't maintain order without authority, laws, and some sort of officials to apply those laws and administer the form of order which has been adopted. There's really four kinds of church government, and it centers on one question. When the final decision is to be made, who has the authority? Uh, One model is the Catholic or the papacy model. It's a spiritual monarchy that there is one supreme, universal, infallible head of the whole Christian body as the authorized representative of Christ. That is not our model. Another is the Episcopal model, which is a spiritual prelacy. You're ruled by an order of clerical prelates. They're above the rank of a normal minister, so it's not a group of pastors. It's a level above that who are alone empowered to ordain. And without their presiding agency, there is no church in that model. There's also the independent or the congregational model, which is spiritual democracy, that all ecclesiastical power resides in the mass of the church members, and all of the ecclesiastical acts of authority are to be performed by them. So they can delegate some of that to pastors or elders or deacons, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with the congregation. When the final decision is to be made, they have the ultimate authority. The fourth type is Presbyterianism. It's spiritual republicanism or representative democracy. In in fact, the government of the United States is largely based on Presbyterian government. And it's that there are elders of the church and ecclesiastical power is deposited with a body of the people's representatives. So the congregation elects representatives who meet certain criteria that the Bible lays out. Those representatives are what are called elders. And from those elders, you'll have some that only rule, some that rule and teach. And they're the ones that are authorized to preach the word, to dispense the sacraments. They have the keys of the kingdom, as the New Testament refers to those. And then within Presbyterianism, you would have the Christian church united by a series of assemblies of those representatives. So an individual church would be represented by a group of elders. That church could be a part of a presbytery, which is a group of like-minded churches that are located geographically somewhat close together, and they send representatives from their own group of elders, which is called a session, up to that presbytery. And then the presbytery could go a level above that. If you had multiple presbyteries, you can connect those in a synod or in a general assembly. Go back to the original question, though. Where can the church be found? The church. It's an objective reality. Jesus Christ established it. He had things to say about what the church was. And so the question is, where can the church be found? Catholicism says wherever the Pope says it is. um, Episcopal government says with the prelates. Congregationalists say anywhere Christians gather. But 
I think a better answer is that the church is found wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and where church discipline is lovingly applied. That's a historical answer from scripture and from church history. And if those three things are true, then I'd like to make a quick case for Presbyterianism. In the whole period of time in the Mosaic economy, think about God working with Israel and think about what God did through uh, Moses and the leaders that would follow him. All church government and all civil government were conducted by boards of elders under the supreme rule of God. Now, in no instance do we see simple democracy, congregational form. And even when God gives Israel a king, he warns them that this is not what you really want. This is not good for you. In the New Testament, you have local churches led by elders with appeals to a group of geographically connected elders. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 comes to mind who would decide important theological matters. If there were disputes between churches or people in churches about what the gospel was, about what Jesus and the apostles were actually teaching, the apostles did uh, call together the Jerusalem Council to make those determinations. But you never find in the New Testament a group of Christians entrusted to the leadership of one individual. It's always a group of elders. And while the New Testament does use the word bishop, it it does speak of that role, it's always preaching and teaching elders. It's always uh, men who do the double duty of ruling and preaching and teaching within the church. And so even though they have more responsibilities, they're not in a position of any more authority than any other elder in the church. And of themselves, they never possess some sort of uh, magical ordaining power or the ability to, to propagate the church beyond themselves. Um, There's no instance in the New Testament of an ordination being performed by a single individual. Ordination is the process where a group of people uh, being led by the Holy Spirit are persuaded that a man is called to a particular office in a particular place, and they lay hands on him for the purpose of prayer. Presbyterians are governed by standards. We're committed to the historic creeds, confessions, and catechisms. In order to summarize what Scripture has commanded of us and to make explicit what must be inferred from Scripture— we have accepted and created governing documents. For theological matters, these you'll hear us talk about creeds and confessions. At Covenant of Grace, we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our primary governing document. We use the Nicene Creed, which I mentioned before when we talked about the Apostles' Creed and what it means to be a Christian. The Nicene Creed is a little later creed that expands all the same doctrines as the Apostles' Creed, but it really was trying to settle a controversy about Jesus Christ and his two natures being fully divine and fully human and what that meant and how that was possible. And so the Nicene Creed is longer than the Apostles' Creed. It is completely in line with it, but it says more. And so we use the Nicene Creed and we use the Heidelberg Catechism as the governing documents of our church. Other churches will use the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism. Denominations will have their own form of government books or books of discipline, directory for public worship, things like that. Um, At our church, we focus on the Heidelberg Catechism because its pastoral nature, its question and answer, and the tone that it takes, which is uh, an elder shepherding his flock, a a father or mother uh, uh, teaching their children, uh, that tone fits our congregation quite well, and the doctrines uh, line with Scripture. We believe that what it teaches is true. We're also committed to the means of grace, and this is a government and theology issue for us because it's a question of how God communicates grace to his people. Through what means will people come to believe, be assured of their salvation, 
experience union with Christ, be convicted of their sins, be reminded of forgiveness in Christ, grow in unity with Christ and in love for God and love for neighbor. The way those things happen is by God working his grace in us. And because of what we believe about God, who he is and how he saves, his utter sovereignty, it's a a foundational issue of government for us that we would be committed to using only the means of grace that he has appointed. That is, we worship God the way he tells us to worship him. And there's really two, two views here about worship. One would be that anything that God doesn't specifically prohibit, you're allowed to do and to use to worship him. Our view would be the opposite, that we're allowed to worship him in only the ways that he has commanded. And we believe that God has a say in how he's to be worshipped, that God cares about how he's to be worshipped, that he has opinions about how his grace will be made known to us. And those are what we call the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And so everything we do in worship is not about our preference as much as it's about using those things which God has given us, which he has told us will be effective uh, so singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, these are, these are word-based, and they're types of prayer. They're our expression back up to God. We confess our faith, proclaiming the word, proclaiming the doctrines of Scripture. So it's not as if we're saying that God commands us in worship just to all sit there and read the Bible and listen to the Bible. He gives us multiple uh, tools that we use. We use song. We use responsive readings. We use uh, Scripture reading straight through Bible books. We use preaching. We, we use uh, a time of taking prayers and and loving one another in the language of scripture, all these these things are, are tools that God gives us to approach the means of grace, which are the ways that he's promised to bless us, ways that he's promised to make effective. And so that's why we use them. And among those, God gives a special place in scripture to the preaching of the word. Uh, it's a particularly effective means of grace. And so it is the central point of Presbyterian worship and our worship in specific, that sermons are focused on the text of scripture, not human preferences or opinions or soapboxes, but on the text of scripture. And so we generally preach straight through books so that the Holy Spirit himself is the author of what topics and subjects are going to be covered in the life of the church over the next few weeks and months. Uh, Sermons have to point to Christ because Christ teaches us that all of scripture testifies about him. That doesn't mean that every verse is specifically about Jesus. It means that what the Bible teaches, what the Bible is leading us toward and pointing to is union with Christ, is that we would believe and be united with Christ by faith and then grow with him in that faith. And so the sermons have to have to be Christ oriented, uh, but they also have to relate to the lives of the congregation. Sermons have to be meaningful and useful in their present circumstances. Christ wasn't just passively obedient, which is what we think about when we say his uh, death for us, which is obviously essential for our salvation, that he would take the death we deserved and raise from the dead and give us righteousness. That's Christ's passive obedience. And when we're united with Christ, we're united with that passive obedience, which is great. But he wasn't only 
passively obedient. He was also actively obedient. Christ walked in union with the will of God. Christ loved his neighbor as himself all the time. Christ loved God with every fiber of his being at every moment of the day. And as we are united with Christ, we are also united with that active obedience, with that Christ-likeness. We grow to become more like Christ, to walk with him more closely and more faithfully. And the sermons have to help us do that too, which means they have to be very practical. They have to take the text of scripture and what they say about Christ and what they say about Christ's people And they have to relate those things to the situations and the difficulties and the joys and the challenges of the lives that we're living right now. So this is what it means to be Presbyterian. And as I started off with, we're not right now in a particular denomination. That's an intentional choice. We met with representatives of uh, multiple Presbyterian denominations. We've looked at the options that are available. And it's just a difficult time, candidly, in in Presbyterian denominations. There are some... uh, some disagreements that exist. There's some infighting that exists, and some of that's always going to happen. Um, but we don't believe that being a part of a denomination is something that the Bible mandates. We can't find in Scripture the command that we as a church must belong in a denomination. So because it's not a command, then it's a question of wisdom, of do the advantages of being in a denomination, not just for us, but for the broader church, do those advantages outweigh disadvantages? And in this current time, we believe the answer is no. We reevaluate that. We're continuing to meet with other people to listen to what they have to say to better understand uh, other perspectives on this. But for the time being, we've decided to remain as an independent Presbyterian church. And we do have uh, men in our church that are interested in uh, being ordained to the office of elder. We do have those men examined by elders from other churches so that we can have some external accountability for doctrinal faithfulness and for making sure that, that we are in every way possible. Uh, being faithful to what the scriptures tell us to do, that we're calling men to these offices who God himself has called to be under shepherds of his people. But we're not part of a denomination right now. We'll reevaluate that over time. Uh, but we are deeply committed to Presbyterianism because the rule of elders that the, is what the Bible teaches. And these elders, when we say rule, it's not just making decisions. It's not a it's not a board of a for-profit company. They're under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our emphasis with our session is on knowing the people of God, knowing the people in our church, being involved with their lives, knowing their children, knowing the issues and the difficulties that they are facing, and being able to speak biblical wisdom into their lives. When we talk about discipline, 99% of discipline is instructive. It's positive discipline. It's like a parent with their child. We're disciplining our children when we teach them. It doesn't have the negative connotation of punishment, but of discipline, of changing their behavior. And as elders, we look to change people's behavior toward Christ-likeness, just as our behavior ought to be changed toward that. So our commitment to Presbyterianism runs deeper than a denomination. It is at the heart of what we're doing in having our elders, ordained godly men, qualified men, called by God according to the scriptures in the lives of our people and shepherding them as closely as we can to the way Christ himself shepherds his people.